I want to continue teaching on cultural diversity. And the title of my message this morning is Cultural Agility. Cultural Agility. What is agility? What is agility? What does it mean to be agile as a person? A lot of organizations today want to be agile. How many of you know that there are a lot of companies that are big, but when you tell them to move directions, to change directions, they struggle? Amen? Let me ask you a question. Who's a faster runner, Usain Bolt or Lionel Messi? Who's a faster runner? Okay, everyone is saying Bolt because you're focused just on speed, right? But how many of you know that depends where they're running? Because Usain Bolt will run very fast and do 9.58. Well, a few years ago, you'll do 9.58, right? And it's amazing how fast he is. And you actually then check out, if you look at that, just Google it. Uh, you'll see on YouTube where he breaks the record. And he's now just jogging around the bend. And just look at the cameraman. I just love that image. The cameraman looks like he's sprinting and he's there and he's got the camera. Okay, just, just check it out. It's such a nice picture. So we know Usain Bolt is super fast. But how many of you have seen Lionel Messi on a soccer pitch? And how many of you have seen how fast he changes direction? He changes direction far quicker than Usain Bolt can. That's being nimble and that's what agility is. Agility is being able to choose your speed. It's being able to turn around and change directions if you want to, whilst maintaining control of that ball. about soccer? It's kind of like soccer season, okay? Right? And they timed them. And guess who was faster? Of course, the sprint champion, right, of Spain. But that was when they were running a straight, in a straight line. Right? They were timed, and he was quite a bit faster than Ronaldo. Then they decided, you know what, we want to time you guys, but this time round, you're not running in a straight line. You are now doing this. To the end. Guess who was faster? Ronaldo was faster. All right? So when we talk about cultural agility, we are saying for us to be mature Christians, for us to be effective in different nations, we need to be culturally agile as opposed to culturally rigid. Amen? When the Zembes go over to Switzerland, if they want to connect with the people there, they can't just be, but in our culture, this is how we do things. Otherwise, business will not work well. They have to understand things cross-culturally. Amen? Amen? And that's why I call this cultural agility. And I want to show you this morning that a lot of these principles I'm sharing are there in the word of God. You see, some people kind of think their culture is the word of God. And they become critical and very judgmental when they see other people doing things in a different way. And then I go and I show them the word and I actually see that, you know what? You can actually do this this way and it's actually biblical. We see Jesus doing it. And you can also do it this way. And we see Jesus sometimes doing it the other way. Are you with me this morning? And the fruit of this message, I believe, is that we'll become more humble. We'll grow in a humility that doesn't make quick judgments about how other people are doing what they're doing. But we will also be more self-aware. We will say to ourselves, I'm so culturally rigid. Because I was brought up this way, I always have to do things this way. But is what I'm doing effective for the purpose that I'm doing what I'm doing? 
Are you hearing me this morning? I've also realized that a lot of people are actually married cross-culturally, even though they have the same skin color. So they look at my wife and I and they think, that's a cross-cultural marriage. And then I counsel lots of couples who've got the same skin color, and I'm thinking, you guys are more cross-cultural than we are. Because this one is from a, this one is an SRB, strong rural background, and this one grew up in town. And I hear people saying that to me. Yeah, pastor, you know, we also need input. Because my wife is from a strong rural background, and I grew up in the city, and we clash quite a lot. Every family has a distinct culture. That's why often when you're doing weddings on the continent, what happens? There's a lot of debate around, so, so which cultural practice are we going to use? Partly because in African tradition and African culture, we've got an oral tradition. We don't have a written tradition. We don't write things down a lot. So there's this debate. What do they do in your tribe? Oh, in our tribe, they do different practices. So it's not about skin color. It's about upbringing from different cultures, different nations. How many of you know that you can make a request, but people will always hear that request through their cultural lens? If you say to an American, can you draw, can you take a photo? If you say to an American, can you take a photo of Tracy? Do you know what the American will do? They'll do a close-up shot of my wife. You want me to take a photo of her face? There, I've taken a photo of her face. If you ask a Japanese person to do the same thing, they'll take a photo with all of you in the background. And it'll be more of a distant shot. And if you study the culture in the East, Japanese, Chinese, Korean, and so on, in many ways, people were brought up with a bit of pantheism and a bit of understanding from their perspective that, you know what, you are part of your environment. We can't really understand you by taking you out of your usual environment and saying, this is Tracy's face. For them, Tracy is in the context of everything else around her. Are you hearing me? And for some of you, you make requests in the workplace, but people are hearing those requests through their cultural lens. Now, guys, you can drill this down just to personality, not even talking about culture. Sometimes you can ask your spouse to do something. Remember, they'll hear it through their filters. And part of emotional intelligence is understanding how is this message going to be heard through someone else's ears. How many of you know that in some cultures, if you go to that person's house for a meal, if you take your own food there also because you want to supplement and you think you're being generous and kind, there's some people, they, they get offended. Because from their perspective, are they saying, are you saying I can't provide for you? Are you saying I'm a bad host? I just want to bless you. But how many of you know that in a lot of other cultures, it's polite to take something with you? How many of you know that in some cultures, it's rude to take food with, away from the place after you've been there? You know, some people will go, we've seen it happen in different church circles, etc. you know, where people come to your house and so on, and then they're leftovers, and then they just, without asking, they just pile up the leftovers in lunch boxes, and they go. 
Now, let me, let me just say something. Even in certain African traditions, African culture, that's something you wait to be given. And it happens actually a lot, eh? You get part course, don't you? And they say, no, 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 I can't let you go without anything. And then they pack it for you, and then you go. But it's not something you do by yourself. But somewhere along the line, it mutated into like, oh, chance given, and people take, and so on. All right? Now, you have to be aware where you're going and who you're dealing with. Because sometimes you can have a wonderful meeting with someone. Sometimes you can connect at a very deep level with someone. But because of something you're not aware of in that culture, you then offend the people and you mess up your own effectiveness. Are you in agreement with me that we need to be culturally agile? Because my friends, you can pray as many prayers as you want and say, Lord, give us nations. And then you're foolish when you're dealing with the people. When the Zembes go, I'm going to keep using you as an example, guys, because I'm excited about Switzerland and what's happening. And other people don't know, so they'll ask you. you know, when they go, they can't operate on African time. You can't do that in Switzerland. Switzerland is one of the nations highest in the world when it comes to punctuality. So where you can get away with it on the African continent, you know, when they say like, okay, uh, we'll arrive when the sun starts getting warm. Okay? And you just pitch up. Lysias, doesn't matter how clever he is, how many PhDs and MBAs he's got and so on, if he messes up in that area, it will affect his relationships with people in Switzerland. Are you hearing me this morning? And ladies and gentlemen, you can't say, but in my culture, this is what we do. Because not everyone is Venda, not everyone is Tswana, not everyone is Sutu. Unless you only want to do business with people from your own tribal group. Amen? We have to understand how the world operates. And nowadays, we have to really understand how the Chinese operate. And that's quite different. And so over the next couple of weeks, I want to begin to unpack to you certain dimensions around cultural agility. Are you ready? Um, let me just give you one more example before we go deep into this. Um, you know, in cultures, for example, you have peach cultures and you have coconut cultures. When I say peach, I'm not talking about skin color. You know, my kids talk about peach. Yeah, that person is peach and so on. In fact, nowadays they don't. They've now gone into the whole black and white thing. But anyway, um, they used to say peach. Peach cultures, what is a peach like? A peach is soft on the outside, isn't it? But hard on the inside. A coconut? Please, and I'm not talking about guys who are, you know, black on the outside and white on the inside. I'm not talking about that, right? <laughs> A coconut is hard on the outside and soft on the inside, right? All milky and so on. Do you know that cultures are different that way? For example, the Americans are a peach culture. So they've been raised to be friendly. And if you've interacted quite a bit with Americans, you can think you're best friends. You're just there on the flight with that person. And they're pouring out stuff, telling you about this, telling you about that. And that can confuse you if you're from a coconut culture. Because you can assume that the warmth that's coming through... We're going to be best friends. And what happens with a lot of Americans? Out of sight, out of mind. And people from coconut cultures are then like, what happened? <laughs> what is that all about? Some people can actually end up feeling used. That, wait a minute, this guy just got me to open up and pour out my whole life and so on. But it's like, he's now forgotten about me. Because we mustn't confuse friendliness with being your best friend. Some people were raised that way. But if you go to certain coconut countries, like Russia, or Finland, and those places, guess what happens? 
you're trying to interact with someone there and you say, hey, hi, you know, hey, so, so how long have you been working here for? And they can look at you funny like, do I know you? In peach cultures, people learn to smile at you. South Africa is a bit like that, isn't it? When they see a stranger, you just brought up like, you know, you just smile, just be friendly. Right? Then sometimes when we try and get very deep with you, then we get to the, that core that's hard. And it's like, oh, okay, I can't go beyond here. Now, guess what happens cross-culturally? Very often, if you come from that peach background and you're smiling at strangers, you can get quickly offended when they don't smile back at you and they look at you funny. That's a cultural thing. Sometimes people who come from peach cultures, I've experienced this specifically in this country. I've, I've experienced it with Durban Indians. Not, not the Indians from Gauteng. Durban Indians. Super friendly. And for some people who are a bit more coconut than Durban Indians, what happens? You can think like, oh, this, this person is getting too intrusive, especially some of the older people. I remember one time, I think I was at Builder's Warehouse, and I was purchasing something there, and this guy just comes up to me. And the type of questions he was asking me, I thought it was quite intrusive, you know? But it's like we're best friends, body space is right up there. Oh, so where'd you buy that from? How much it cost you? I was, and he's asking me all these detailed questions about myself. All right? And I, I, love the, I love Durban Indians, by the way. And I think they're warm and they're friendly. And then they complain about Indian people from Gauteng. Because they're like, we're different. No, we're different. No, they're not friendly. No, they All right? So before you get quickly offended by how someone behaves, ask yourself, can I suspend judgment here? How was this person raised? Because some of you were raised in families where you're told it takes a village to raise a child. How many of you were raised in those families? It takes a whole village to raise a child. Some of you were raised in families where you're told, don't trust strangers. How many of you were raised in those families? Can you see the difference? I remember speaking to one client of mine and he says to me, he was, we were just all chatting and so on, and he said, hey, he was explaining how he is like in terms of fear when it comes to some of the bosses and the dynamics at work. And he says, when we grew up in the township, you find if you misbehave, you first get a hiding from your friend's father, who hardly even knows you, but the hiding will come from there. Then later on, when your parents hear about what you had done, you then also get another hiding from your parents. You know what I'm talking about. And guys, you know that with a lot of our local languages, uh, the, the syllables are a lot. So for each spank you are getting, each beat, it, 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 the syllables kick in. You know what I'm talking about. Okay? If you're Shona, where I come from, and so on, U, Sa, Da, Ro, Kwa, Ndi, Ri, U, No, Fu, Nga, Ku, Ti, Ha, Ndi, Ri, Wo, Na, He, Re. You get what I'm saying? Now you translate that into your Zulu and into your thing, right? But that's what would happen to people as they were growing up. Now here's the thing. So don't be quickly offended if some oldish woman in your community starts scolding your children and you say, hey, don't talk to my kids like that. She grew up in an environment where it was normal, where her responsibility is to look after all the kids and if the parents aren't there, she'll take over. 
And you know what the beautiful thing is? She'll also take over if something happens to you and you don't have, and your kids don't have lunch, she'll also cook lunch for them. Are you hearing what I'm saying? She'll also take your kids to school. So we need to really unpack this thing so that we understand different cultures. The first dimension I want to deal with with you is individualism versus collectivism. And guys, there's some brilliant people out there and you can study some of these. Those of you who want to go deeper into this, there's a lady called Erin Mayer. Erin Mayer, she's at the forefront in the world at the moment in terms of cross-cultural communication. There's a guy from way back called Hurt, Hurt Hofstede and he did a lot of cultural dimensions throughout the world in terms of this. Um, there's going to be a book that I'm going to produce out of a lot of the studies I'm doing right now. It'll be called... Um, a biblical view of diversity with all the diversity stuff we've been doing. So that will also be great. Yes, I want to include myself there also. Amen. All right. So the first one I want to look at is individualism versus collectivism. Individualism versus collectivism. This is the degree to which people are integrated into groups. In a lot of our African countries, we're very collectivist. In other words, we make decisions not based on our individual conscience. We make decisions based on fear of banishment from the in-group. So instead of asking someone, do you believe in this or do you believe in that? What do people say? What's your cultural practice? What is your family practice? What do you guys do? What does your church believe? They don't ask the question as an individual. Amen? If you go to your parents and you say, mom, dad, I want to study arts at university. Mom, dad, look at themselves and then they say, has anyone in our family ever done this? Do we do, oh, no, uh, no, my son, sorry, we can't send you to university to just draw pictures. We can't pay for that, no, sorry, okay? They look at what the cultural norm is and as a result, you've got whole groups of people who end up doing certain careers, right? It's like, no, this is what our people do, so we're all accountants, we're all doctors, I won't mention which groups, you just, you know, if the shoe fits. We're all police officers, okay? The shoe fits, you can put it, you, you can wear it, okay? So we have that happening even in this nation right now. And that's a collectivist mindset, right? A lot of times decisions are made based on consensus. Does everyone agree? And if everyone agrees, then cool, we'll do it. Doesn't matter what the word of God says, all right? You'll also find that with collectivist cultures, they value the extended family a lot. Now, remember, we have to see everything through the eyes of the Bible. Because in scripture, it says, Therefore shall a man leave his mother and father, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there's a leaving that has to happen. But in collectivist cultures, the moment their marital problems by default, people are phoning mom, phoning... Pastor wants to counsel them, but there's already a family gathering. And the family gathering often fails. And then after it fails, they're like, oh, are you a marriage coach? Yeah, no, we just need to speak to you because we've tried. Yeah, and, and I was really upset because my husband, he just, he didn't even warn me about it. He just called a family gathering and everyone got involved in our business. Well, that's a collectivist mindset. The moment you get married, even before you get married, decide. These are the people we respect in the church. These are our pastors or whoever else it, it, it may be. And when we hit a deadlock, this is who we go to. Be very careful about family gatherings, ladies and gentlemen, especially when the people in your family aren't all biblical Christians. 
Okay? Sometimes you might have a black person in the workplace saying to their boss, I need, I need to take some time off work. Oh, why? Oh, my cousin died and we've got his funeral coming up. Then afterwards, the boss, who's from a different culture, complains and he says, that guy lied to me. That guy lied. That, the guy would have said, my brother. He would have said, my brother passed away. And then now the boss is saying, but that guy lied. How did he lie? He said it was his brother. It was actually his cousin. No, but from this guy's perspective, in the local languages, there is no different word for cousin and brother. You get what I'm saying? The direct translation of cousin is brother. And if you ask more than two questions deep, they grew up together. Because how did we grow up in the rural communities? You know, it's like you're playing all of you, your cousins and everything. So again, culturally, we must watch out for that. When someone says, my aunt passed away, don't just assume it's their aunt in the same way that people in the West relate to their aunt. Ask more than two questions deep because maybe that was the aunt that raised them. How many of you were raised by an aunt in this room? How many of you were raised by an aunt? Okay, a couple of you. How many of you were raised by an uncle? Maybe not an aunt, an uncle. How many of you were raised by a grandparent? More hands, all right. But can you see the point I'm making? Culturally on this continent, a lot of people grew up in environments where the grandmothers now had all her children, right? And there's quite a big age gap, right? And then the last child has now left home. What happens? What typically happens? I don't know if you guys do what, what, they, what they do up in Zim. At a certain point, one of the kids that has already got quite a number of kids, the grandmother then says, can we take this one to stay with us, to look after us? Not so. Now, when that person grows up and you hear them saying, my grandmother has passed away, that was the grandmother who raised them as a mother. Are you hearing me? All right. So always ask, what's the nature of the relationship with that person? And don't make assumptions. All right. So some of the collectivist cultures are the Chinese, the Korean, the Japanese, lots of African countries, individualist cultures, the U.S., the UK and Australia. All right? Now, what's the biblical balance here? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, I've just read it to you. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Many people are struggling in their marriages today because they ne they've never left. Even culturally, when they talk about marriage, they just say, you're now joining our family and there's no actual leaving. And so now there's conflict in terms of values because the couple has never thought through, well, let's establish our own values. What are we going to take from your family? What are we going to take from my family? And what, how are we going to raise our children? What are we going to do in our household? Amen? And that's crucial, the leaving part. Your spouse, gentlemen, your wife must feel like she's the most important person. If there are issues with your family, you must stand up for her. Amen? And the, and the other way around too. You know, some of the guys are thinking, yeah, but pastor, also the other way around. Yeah, also the other way around. Okay? You know a big complaint today in a lot of marriages? Pastor, my husband, you know, when I ask him to do things for me, he procrastinates. 
But then when his brother or his parents ask for something, he drops everything and he does it for them. There was no leaving. Galatians 6, verse 4 to 6. Here's the balance. Here's the, here's the balance. Each one should test his own work. Then he will have reason to boast in himself alone and not in someone else. One of the things we have in churches is what we call riding on each other's glory. You know those people who think they're an amazing Christian just because they've got an amazing pastor or they've got an amazing cell group leader. No, seriously. And their whole Christian identity is based on what their church is doing even though they're not actively involved. They're going to this big fancy church with nice sofas, nice seats, and they're always talking about how, yeah, then we're doing this and we've got this amazing conference and then we're doing this and this and this and this. But when I read the Bible here, guess what it says? It says, each one should test his own work. Individual accountability. Amen? Each one should test his own work. Then he will leave, then he will have reason to boast in himself alone and not in someone else. I have to exercise myself. I can't keep getting up and saying, my wife, yeah, she's going to world champs, yeah, guys, and so on. And sometimes it's a bit embarrassing for me, you can understand, because I was an athlete back in the day. And people always assume it's the guy who's really into it, who's, who's coached his wife and roped her into it. So whenever I'm at these fancy things and so on, you know, and I'm wearing a, a, an Iron Man cap or something, you know, they're, they're looking all slick, they're walking around, and then guys are like, and Paul, what do you do? Uh, actual, uh, actual. <laughs> All right? Sometimes, no, sometimes we ride on each other's glory and we forget that we're not actually doing our bit. It doesn't matter how fit my wife is, it won't pass on to me by osmosis. It, <laughs> you get what I'm saying? Right? Sometimes when we're very collectivist, we think that. We think that. You've got parents living through their children. You speak to someone and then they're just talking about their child only. And you're like, are you living your dreams out through your child? The Bible says each one should test his own work. Then he will have reason to boast in himself alone and not in someone else. For each one should carry his own load. But then look at the balance, verse 6. However, the one who receives instruction in the word must share in all good things with his instructor. In other words, there's no self-made man. When you become successful, remember that there are people who helped you to get there. And it's important to share with those people some of the benefits you're experiencing today. Some people in church circles have caught on to that, others haven't. I'm not going to go there today. Some people have caught on to that, others haven't. All right? Galatians 6 verse 2. This is just before he's talking about carrying your own load. Look what he then he says in verse 2. Carry one another's burdens. And in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So you've got some people on this individualistic extreme. I'm a self-made man. I don't need anyone. And they forget about their families and they forget about everyone else. Then you've got this other extreme where there's just no boundaries. And everyone just waltzes into your house whenever they want. And there's this entitlement mentality that because you are my fill in the blank, because I'm related to you this way, then I demand this. That's the other extreme, collapsed boundaries. 
The healthy biblical balance is that we should test our own work. We are accountable before God, but at the same time it says, carry one another's burdens. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep and mourn with those who are weeping and mourning. Amen? In Romans 12 verse 5 it says, So in Christ we, though many, we form one body. When we're worshiping like this in the church, it's congregational worship, isn't it? Yes, I can worship as an individual when I'm at home, but when I'm coming here, we're doing it together, and it's not about the individual. You see, sometimes when it's congregational worship, people now want to have their own personal quiet time. If you study biblical worship, when we get together, it's congregational worship. A sweet-smelling aroma corporately to God. And when one person messes up, he's messing up for everyone else. Right? Then it says, so though we are many, we form one body and each member belongs to all the others. That's quite a radical statement. For those of you who are very individualistic, the Bible actually says each member belongs to all the others. Some people will get up and just say, guys, I belong to God and I don't care what you guys think. The Bible here says each member, are you a member, belongs to all the others. So whatever gifts God has given me, they're not for me. They're for you. Whatever gifts God has given you, they're not for you. They're for us. And that's why it's a fundamental theological problem when Christians are gifted and called by God, but they sit doing nothing. They haven't got this revelation that each member belongs to another. Amen? If the prophetic is operating in my life, it's for someone else. It's to give away. If there's a teaching gift in my life, it's for someone else. That's why when I write books, why I'm doing them at such a pace is I see it as an obligation. Are you hearing me? Do I think I'm the best? No. But I see it as an obligation. Someone got that. Number two. Number two. Internal locus of control versus external locus of control. For those of you who don't know what that means, you can learn it. Some people say, Paul, you use big words. It's fine, but I always explain what the big words mean. Amen. All right? Internal locus of control versus external locus of control. What is the locus of control? Well, it's to do with your belief about who shapes your life. If you've got an internal locus of control... You believe that you shape your life. Nothing outside of you influences what you do. Amen? If you have an external locus of control, you're very fatalistic. Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. You have a wait and see mentality. Your mindset is, my whole life and everything that happens to me is because of something outside of me. And you know what I find interesting? You have Christians on different extremes. Because you've got the Christian who emphasizes that, you know what, God helps only those who help themselves. So your prayer doesn't change anything. You've got to do something about it, my brother. And then you've got the people on the other extreme who will say, so we'll just wait and see what God does. And you're saying to this person, but what can you do differently? In your marriage, what can you change? What does God expect from you? There's someone who isn't necessarily a Christian, who's also a, a, a a psychologist and she said to me Paul I'm concerned about some of the people I'm counseling 
because they're very religious and they keep saying, we just thank God. We just thank God. We just believe in God. And Paul, I'm concerned because I don't know if they're taking accountability. Paul, how do I deal with that? And I said to her, work with it. Show them that they have an accountability to God. Show them that they have to behave in a certain way towards their spouse. And God has got certain principles that work. Instead of being fatalistic. Amen? Now guys, this is a cultural thing. This is a cultural thing. Who shapes your life? Is it what you do? Or is it something beyond you? The people with a very strong external locus control often don't take responsibility. If as a consultant, I go up to them and I say, your business is failing because of your poor leadership skills. Some of them will turn around and say, no, Paul, it's because my brother bewitched me. Here's my question. Will that person put any effort into studying entrepreneurship, into studying things about his industry? No, they won't because they believe their whole destiny is being shaped by other forces beyond themselves. Then you have other people on this extreme and you challenge them and you say, I think there's a spiritual dynamic here. We need to pray into this. And they're like, no, 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 no. I must just do what I need to do. And they see prayer as a weakness, as a crutch. You know what's so interesting? You see it in our language. If you want to know whether someone has got an internal locus of control or an external locus of control. Look at their language. Let me ask you a question. How do you say in Zulu, how do you say this in Zulu? Let's say the bus arrived at seven in the morning, but you pitched up at five past seven and the bus had already left. How do you express to someone that the bus left before you got there. How do you say that in Zulu? Okay, because in my language, Shona, we say, Ndasiwa Nebazi. And you know what that means, direct translation? The bus left me. In other words, I'm this passive person just floating through life, this victim, and look what happened. The bus has left me. Whereas if you're speaking in English, what do you say? I missed the bus. <laughs> now, here's the thing, guys. Language is so important. Why is language important? You, can, you only have words for things you can conceptualize. You only have words for things that are concepts in your culture. You get what I'm saying? In English, they've got the same word for auntie on your mother's side and on your father's side. It's the same word. And people relate in the same way to those people. In our African cultures, we've got different words for those people. And we relate to them differently. And there are different levels of respect for those people. How many of you know that your aunt on your father's side is very powerful? <laughs> you get what I'm saying? And if you've got issues and so on, she's the one who's got the clout in terms of influencing the upper echelon of the family hierarchical structure. Amen? So it's good to be close to that particular aunt. It's a different dynamic with your mother's sister. Different level of respect and, and so on. The point I'm making is you see a lot in our language. Do you know that the Spanish, 
They love football. It's a soccer nation, isn't it? I know we think of tennis because of Nadal and so on, but it's a soccer-loving country. Do you know that they've got a Spanish word for the back of the net? In English, we just say the back of the net. In, in, in Spanish, they've got a specific word for the back of the net. Okay? The point I'm just making is, in our languages, our African languages, we, we tend to speak in a very passive way. And that shows that we've got a strong external locus of control. That my whole world is controlled by forces outside of me. Let me, let me just say something. It's very difficult to be a strong entrepreneur, a strong business person, if you've got that mindset. Because you'll always be waiting. Those are the people who then go, they try and do a bit of juju. You see it even happening with soccer teams. Soccer teams in this country that don't even qualify for World Cup and so on. But they spend a lot of time doing a lot of black magic stuff to try and win. <laughs> Seriously, go, go read um, Tiko uh, Modise's book about his time when he was at Pirates and some of the stuff people do. And he said it was quite weird. It was quite crazy, you know, but some of the rituals they would have and so on. So why isn't Pirates always winning? Um, what's that trophy for best club in Africa? Anyway. That's, that's, that's an aside. No offense to those of you who are Pirates fans. <laughs> How do you say in Zulu, Osutu, Otswana? Okay, guys, I'm not biased. I'm just picking a language. How do you say, let's say there's, there's a stone or a rock, and then you stumble and you fall. How do you say it? In, in my home language, we say Ndagumburwa. Right? I, I was tripped. <laughs> Guys, you are the one who went and you weren't looking properly. Why don't you say, I tripped? It happened to me. There are these forces. Now, now, if we stay with that mindset, it will affect us in business. It will affect us in churches. Because we just think like, oh, whenever God wants to do his thing, he'll do it. Then we don't strategize anymore. Uh, whenever God wants to grow my business, we'll see. Let's just keep fasting. Let's keep praying, Pastor. Pastor, lay hands on me, please, for increase. <laughs> and yes, there's power in doing that. But it works when you're also doing things according to biblical principles. When you then read the books on business God's way, when you re read the books on kingdom entrepreneurship, you get what I'm saying? Because there are powerful principles there. We work with the word and with prayer, and we see results. Amen. Not, oh yeah, you know what, if I bath with this type of soap that the pastor anointed, <laughs> ah, then blessings will come. If you spray me with this, yeah, then it will happen. It doesn't matter how I deal with my family, how I deal. That's why I'm so big on giving people tools with this TV show that we're doing. People are saying the thing that was missing on TV is, it's the tools. People have been waiting for tools. In the past, people just aired their dirty laundry and so on, but now they want tools, practical things they can do to transform lives. Amen? Amen. Pastor, just come and just spray that and everything will be fine. Yes, no, we will anoint your place, we will pray, we'll make declarations and so on, but you have to live in line with the word. So let's look at the biblical balance. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 to 8 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. 
So there's deception here, right? God cannot be mocked. Whatever a man sows, didn't you say some of the things? Whatever a man sows, he will reap in return. Are you very critical? Are you very judgmental? Whatever a man sows, and man there is generic, so it also applies to women. You know, some people say, ah, it only applies to men. <laughs> we can say what we want because we are women. No. Whatever a man sows, he will reap in return. The one who sows to please the flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. But the one who sows to please the spirit, the things you can do that please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. I mean, that eternal life doesn't just start when you die. The life of God begins when you are born again. You start experiencing the very life of God in you. Amen? Eternal life is a quality of life. And the degree to which I sow my time into things of the spirit, to the same degree will I reap the life of God. If I sow my life into things of the flesh, to the same degree will I reap destruction. So some of you say, I know, but God's grace just covers it all. Yeah, I know my husband does that, but ah, God's grace is just covering all. No, you reap what you sow, ladies and gentlemen. Amen? So who determines what they reap? You do. Now, when I do good stuff, when I sow into the spirit, what I reap is way more than what I've sown. And that's where grace is coming in now. Because the blessing is so much bigger than whatever I've done to trigger it. Amen? James chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. It says, you do not even know, this is the balance now. Because there's some people who just think my destiny is completely in my hands and my hands alone. But look what it says in James 4, 14 to 16. It says, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord is willing. Can you see where the God factor comes in? If the Lord is willing, we will live and do this. Or do that. In other words, what we're saying is there are no guarantees. You can do this, you can sow that seed, you can do all of that, but God needs to be willing. Amen? Then it says in verse 16, as it is, you boast in your proud intentions. And it says, all such boasting is evil. So that's the balance we live by. We're basically saying, Lord... What are your principles? You say, if I walk in diligence, if I'm a giver, you've got a whole list of things that will unlock your prosperity for me. I'm going to do those things, Lord. But at the same time, I recognize that I'm unlocking something from your pocket, as Pastor Chooks would say, right? I'm unlocking some resource from you, from heaven, and will only take place in your time when you want it to. It's not something I can demand as some secret formula. Amen? But God, I've done what I need to do in terms of the keys and the doors that I need to open. You now bring in the floodgates. Number three. The third dimension I want to share with you this morning is task versus relationship. There's some cultures that are very task-orientated. 
And there's some cultures that are very people and relationship orientated. Task orientated people are action orientated. Unfortunately, they sometimes leave casualties along the way. You know those people who are such doers. But how many of you know that if a strength of yours is you're very goal-orientated, very task-orientated, when you overuse that strength, what happens? Come on, how many of you are goal-orientated here in this room? You're very goal-orientated. How many of you have had people say, you just walked past me when you walked along the corridor the other day. You didn't even notice me. All right, you can raise your hand. How many of you recently have had people say to you, it's not just about your goals and your dreams. Our stuff is also important, you know. Can you see what's happening? Your task orientation is a strength. It gets you to do stuff, but when you overuse it, it becomes a liability. And guys, it's the same when it comes to our cultures. The task orientated cultures are really great when it comes to accomplishing various things, but very often they don't exhibit the fruit of the spirit, one of which is patience. So you can keep saying, yeah, but I get things done and show off and boast about it. But heaven is looking and saying, yeah, you got it done in two minutes. That's wonderful. You broke your record. But I'm not applauding because you're not exhibiting the fruit of the spirit, which is patience. The Lord challenged me this morning. I was taking, to my, kids, I was taking my kids to a soccer tournament. And as I was driving, I made a statement. I told them a particular thing. And then one of my boys says, oh, dad, what? What, what? And I said, you know what? With you... I'm tired of repeating myself. Guys, can someone else just tell him, please? Because I don't have to say something three times before you actually you know, get it. You must just be listening to me. The Lord convicted me that, you know, Paul, that's a bit impatient. I was being impatient. Yes, it happens a lot of times. Yes, I want my kids to just hear me first time and so on. Yes, it's irritating when I have to keep repeating myself. Now, I can think I'm, I'm goal-orientated. I shouldn't waste my words. I'm about to go to church. I don't want to be talking too much. I'm spiritual. I'm guarding the anointing. I can think all those things, but the fact of the matter is I was being impatient. Amen? So what's the balance between task and relationship? What's the balance between being task-orientated and being people-orientated? Just look in scripture. In Philippians 3 verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained all of this, all this, or I've already arrived at my goal. So Paul was goal-orientated. Someone once asked me, I was talking about goal stuff, and say, they said, is goal-setting biblical? Well, Philippians 3 verse 12, while Paul was in prison, this is one of the prison epistles, right? Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my? At my? At my? So Paul had goals. Okay, period. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. So he was very clear and he had goals. And that's healthy. Some people are floating through life aimlessly. Some cultures encourage us to be goal-orientated. Other cultures encourage, whatever will be, will be. Where I come from, they do their go. <laughs> some people get that they do the eggs right no we must have goals you say to some people so what's your dream so when do you want to start your own company oh, whenever God wants we'll see what, where God's will takes us and so you're waiting for God and God is waiting for you guys goal setting is important 
I've shared with some of you this, but you know that they did a study in about 1953, one of the top universities in the United States, they did a study on some graduates there. It was a graduate class, actually. And they asked them, how many of you have written down goals with action plans? Written down goals with action plans. Guess how many hands went up? Only three in that graduate class. Smart people, clever people. 20 years later, in 1973, they interviewed that same group of people just to see what had happened in their lives. Guess what they found? Those three people who had written down their goals with action plans were generally happier and more fulfilled than the other people. And you say to me, but Paul, how do you measure happiness? There's something you can measure. Something you can measure. You can actually measure happiness, but some of you might debate that with me, so I'll leave that aside. You can measure net worth. The net worth of those three people who had written down their goals with action plans was greater, watch this, was greater than the combined net worth of the balance of the class. How do you explain that? It's been found that when you write down your goals, you're 10 times more likely to accomplish them than when you just dream them. A lot of people are just living in their dreams. La la land. Wishing. Amen? All right? So Paul had goals. So we should be goal-orientated. Acts chapter 16, verse 14 to 15 says, Among those listening was a woman named Lydia. Now remember, I've just said to you, Paul was goal-orientated. But watch this. Among those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatria, Thyatria, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and her household had been baptized, look what she did. It says, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Were they intending to stay at her house? No. They had other plans, but they had enough flexibility and relational muscle in them and EQ to say, you know what, cool, let's chill with these people. Amen? Some of the most successful people today are people who are goal-orientated, but they also value the human touch. Amen? Those of you who are very goal-orientated, just watch out and make sure you're also tapping into relational connection. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 to 13. Look what happens with Paul. He says, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, a door opened, a door stood open for me in the Lord. So it was a door that was in the Lord. It was God's will, right? And he had a goal to preach in all these places. But look what happened. I had no peace in my spirit. Why? Because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. He pressed pause on his goal because he didn't have his teammate with him. And he didn't feel the peace of God. You see, some of you are those kinds of people who say, but I'll just do whatever I need to do. If I have to do it by myself, I'll just do it by myself. But can you see the balance here between task and relationship? He was about to do God's will. Everything was in line. But because there was no relational connection, because Titus was not there with him, he changed his plans. Can you see how some cultures have the one extreme where it's all relationship and no goals, not producing anything. The church becomes a holy huddle. And then with other cultures, it's about task, 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 no relational connection. Ladies and gentlemen, we need both. And both are in scripture. Amen? Amen. Number four, 
Let's see how I do. I might end with this one. Direct feedback versus indirect feedback. You know that in some countries, they're very direct when they're giving you negative feedback, like the French, like in France. So they'll be indirect when they're giving you positive feedback. They won't just praise you and so on. They'll be indirect about the positive feedback. But when it comes to the negative feedback, they'll be very direct about it. Right? And you know that with the Americans, it's the other way around. They'll be indirect when it's negative feedback, and they'll be direct when it's positive feedback. Because culturally, Americans are being taught right now, let's build on our strengths. Let's praise people. So be like, wow, Jimmy, my brother, you're just so amazing. Look at those muscles, and you also sing. What a combo. And you think you're their hero. And then you find out via via that, you know what, they actually have this and this issue. You have that with a number of cultures. In fact, there was a lady where her kids grew up in Paris. They grew up in France. And even though the child will be coming like number five in their grade, if you look through the book, you'll just see the teacher saying things like, apply yourself. Even though they're in the top five in their grade. And then she wanted them to have an experience because she's actually American. She wanted them to have an experience in the States. And these guys just loved it. Because in America, when it came to positive feedback, throughout they're just seeing these stars, these smiley faces, and so on. You know? And then when it comes to the negative feedback, you know, just maybe bring some more clarity here. Draw this out a little more. Now, some of you have experienced this, and you'll just be like, these people are conning. These people are being deceitful. These people aren't being honest. But just be sensitive to the fact that culturally some people are brought up to be more direct about positive things than negative things. And culturally other people are brought up to be more direct about the negative stuff than the positive. Some of you have worked with people where they don't praise you about every single thing you do because in their minds it's like it's your job. Are you hearing me this morning? Okay. If you're not used to direct feedback when it happens and you are the recipient, you might get offended. You might be like, this person was just too direct. Or you might assume they were angry with you. Because in your culture, if, you, if you're that direct, then you're really upset. And this person has forgotten about it the following day. They just told you, boom, 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 boom. And they've forgotten about it. Next day, you're friends. I have people I coach and they say to me, but Paul, you know what? I get confused with that boss over there. Because he's so direct when it comes to negative feedback. Then the following, then in the afternoon, he's saying, come, let's go for lunch. Paul, I'm, I'm grappling with it. How can we go for lunch and you've just tuned me out about my work? He's been raised in a family where for them, it's unfiltered conflict around ideas. It's not personal. You see, we often tend to make the mistake of judging people based on our cultural lens, not on theirs. Countries that are very indirect when it comes to feedback, Kenya, Ghana, Indonesia, you'll find a lot of indirect negative feedback. When it comes to negative feedback, it'll be indirect. Whilst in places like Russia, Israel, they'll be very direct with you about negative feedback. That's why, do you remember Jesus? 
Do you remember how he spoke about Nathaniel? And Jesus says, there's no guile in this person. He's a typical Israelite. Typical Jewish guy. Why? Because he was honest about how he felt, even though it was negative. You'll find, for example, that the Netherlands, the Dutch, it's a known fact that they'll be very direct with you about negative feedback. Okay? Let me give you a quick example of this. If you've got an English person talking to a Dutch person, this is very interesting. This is what the British will say. With all due respect, but what the British person is actually meaning, I think you're wrong. And this is what the Dutch person understands by that. Okay, he's listening to me. The British person will say, perhaps you would think about, or they'll say, um, I would suggest, but what they're really meaning is, this is an order, do it or be prepared to justify yourself. And the Dutch person is listening and he's thinking, okay, you're saying, think about this idea and do it if you like. That's why sometimes you'll have some British people who are bosses in the workplace will say something very gently like it's a suggestion. And then you actually don't take them seriously and you still do it your own way. And then they're upset after they're like, but how come you didn't do it the way I wanted? The request was very soft. It was a softened version. And guys, when we're communicating cross-culturally, we need to be aware that not everyone is hearing things as we are saying it. The British will say, oh, uh, by the way, but what they're really meaning is the following criticism is the purpose of this discussion. And the Dutch are hearing it as, this is not very important. The British will say, I was a bit disappointed that, but what they're really meaning is, I'm very upset and angry that. Okay? And the Dutch is hearing, it doesn't really matter. And guys, you know what? This translates to our personalities, isn't it? Because a lot of earth greens, what we call earth greens who don't like conflict, they'll speak a bit like the British here. And the fiery reds will be hearing it like the Dutch. All right? The British will say, hmm, very interesting. But what they're really meaning is, I don't like it. <laughs> Happened in one of my workshops today, uh, well, recently, this week, where I would say certain things or would talk about certain things, and people would be like, yeah, my, what my, it, was, it was marriage coaching, it was actually for the TV show. Hmm, it's interesting what my wife is saying. It's interesting. But you could see the person who was really meaning I don't agree with this. I don't know where you're coming from. Okay? And it's interesting because how the Dutch will hear it is, okay, so he's impressed. He said it's interesting. Okay? The British would say, could you consider some other options? <laughs> but what they're really meaning is, your idea is not a good one. But the, the, the Dutch are hearing it as, he has not yet decided. Okay, the British will say, um, please think about that some more. What they're really meaning is, it's a bad idea, don't do it. But the Dutch are hearing, it's a good idea, keep developing it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, the British will say, I'm sure it's my fault. But what they're really meaning is, it's not my fault. But what the Dutch hear is, it's his fault. Okay. And then finally, the British will say, that's an, orig that, that's an original point of view. You know, that's quite unique. <laughs> but what they're really meaning is, your idea is stupid. <laughs> All right? And what, and what the Dutch are hearing 
is he likes my idea. You know what I've learned, guys? Biblically, there's an interesting pattern I see. When we communicate, we must say what we mean and mean what we say. Don't speak in riddles. Even if in your culture, it's seen as offensive to be direct. But when we are direct, let's do it with kindness. Let's do it with humility. And I want to close by sharing with you those verse, the verses. What does the Bible actually say? Well, James chapter 5, verse 19. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, consider this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So it's a good thing bringing someone back, isn't it? What happens in church? I don't want to get involved in their business. So we become individualistic. Instead of realizing, let me restore my brother. Let me help him out in this thing. It doesn't mean you're being nosy. You're trying to help. Amen? In Galatians 6 verse 1, it says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, how many of you have been caught in a sin? Some of you have sinned but haven't been caught yet. <laughs> okay. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, who here lives by the Spirit? You who live by the Spirit, so don't do it in the flesh, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. In other words, go and give that person that negative feedback. Go and help them out, but do it with gentleness. That's the biblical way. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1 to 2, it says, now th this is the balance. This is the balance. Because some people say, oh, we must be direct. Paul, I can't hide anything. You'll see it in my face. If someone messes me around, I'll just tell them. Look what the Bible says. Do not rebuke an older man. So when my children try to rebuke me, they shouldn't actually be doing that. When they try to rebuke, because this also applies to their mother. Are you hearing me? It says here, do not rebuke an older man. So what should we do when we're addressing things? But appeal to him as a father. This is Paul speaking to Timothy, and Timothy was pastoring a church. You know what this tells me, guys? It tells me that if I have to address something with Sipo, and I have to give him negative feedback. I won't use exactly the same tone with Sipo as I would with Mr. Manyumwa. Because he's older than me. But I will still address it. Now people from individualistic cultures will just say, no, you have to treat everyone the same. It's egalitarian, treat everyone the same, we're professionals here. Biblically, it's actually saying, address it, be direct. But watch how you speak to someone based on respect for them, simply because of their age. Are you hearing me? I'm just reading the Bible, ladies and gentlemen. Okay? Do not rebuke an older man, but appeal to him as to a father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers. There are not that many, there are no longer that many people older than us, my brush in this church. Okay, but if there's an older woman here, right? If there's an older woman here, right? I appeal to her as I would a mother. I would address the things, but I won't speak to her like she's a little girl. Amen? 
And then it says, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. There's certain things you don't do to your sister. If you do it to your sister, then we would think this is incest. Guys, how are you treating the younger women in the church? In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 to 17, this is the biblical pattern. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault. In other words, some translations say confront him, but in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. How many of you avoid conflict? You don't like conflict, so you avoid it. Come on, you can, you can be a person who doesn't like conflict, but you don't avoid it. You address it because you know you should. How many of you tend to avoid conflict? Just raise your hand. Come on, guys. There's healing. There's confession. It's a safe place. Place. All right? Okay. Here's, here's the instruction. I'm admonishing you from the word of God. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault. Confront him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. We don't do that nowadays, do we? <laughs> tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. That's biblical Christian culture there. Now look at the different ways in which Jesus confronted people. In Matthew 12 verse 34, look, look what Jesus did. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So there are certain people Jesus confronted and he called them, you brood of vipers. Amen? But look how culturally agile he was. He didn't treat everyone like this. With the one group he did that. Then look here, John 8, verse 3 to 11. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law of Moses, uh, we're supposed to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question to trap, to trap him in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. That's very indirect, isn't it? He started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin in the original language, it's actually without this sin, okay? Some, some commentators will say, without sin, be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? He didn't say, girl, what were you doing? What were you thinking? Okay? No one, sir, she said, then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. I find it interesting. He didn't mince his words, but he was very gentle. He didn't say, try not to do it. He says, leave your life of sin. 
He addressed the sin issue, but he did it creatively and gently. A lot of people don't know how to switch gears, guys. They're like brood of vipers to everyone. And they, they, they're so proud of the fact that I'm consistent. I'm consistent. Doesn't matter how old you are, whoever you are. That's how I deal with people. No, that's stupid. Amen? We see Jesus, one group is saying brood of vipers. With this woman, he does it in a creative way, but it's still very clear what he's doing. Very, very clear. And finally, we see with the woman at the well, John 4, verse 15 to 19. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. He didn't say, thus says that the Lord, I'm sensing something, my sister. I'm sensing that you're living in sin right now and that the person you're living with is not your husband. I'm picking it up. I'm the greatest prophet around in front of everyone. What did he do? He was quite creative about it, but he was also quite direct. He gently communicated it. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. <laughs> and the man you now have is not your husband. Can you see he softened the blow? Why? Because, because he let her confess it first. And then he says, you're right. And then he gave her more detail about her situation. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Okay. Surprise, surprise. Ladies and gentlemen, may we grow in cultural agility. Let's pray. I'll continue next week. Father, I pray this morning that you would take us to a place in our lives where we are culturally agile. Father, I pray this morning that you would free us where we've made quick judgments instead of going to your word and instead of showing and demonstrating your love. Father, I pray that this week you would give each of us an opportunity to practice some of these principles. Lord, I pray right now for those who've been culturally rigid, that you would work deep in their hearts, deep in our hearts, so that we are able to let go of certain things that are not biblical and are not useful. Father, I pray that there would be such a flexibility in us whilst remaining biblical and Christian, Lord God. May you help us, Lord, we pray.